This episode of The Happiness Question is brought to you by Jay Schiffman. Jay Schiffman is a public speaker, coach, and host of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. He interviews people with lived experiences on the topics of mental health, substance misuse, and recovery, and drug use and policy to help end stigma and normalize difficult conversations through empathy and vulnerability. Each year, over 125,000 Americans die from overdose and suicide combined. I'm not even talking about the other causes of death related to substance misuse and mental health. Just those two. Those are our friends, our neighbors, our family members. They go to our churches, eat next to us at our favorite restaurants. They talk to us through our favorite podcasts. And these deaths are completely preventable. There are massive system changes that need to happen. But until we can have an honest conversation about these topics, these lives will continue to be lost. That's why Jay produces the Choose Your Struggle podcast. That's why he tells his story. As a guy in long-term recovery who survived two suicide attempts and an overdose, he recognizes his privilege. He's been given a second chance in a country and a world where most people don't even get their first. For him not to use it for something truly meaningful would be a waste of his second chance. That's why he gives up every day to work to end the stigma and ensure that those who need help get the help they deserve, because we're in this together. Check out his podcast, Choose Your Struggle, by listening wherever you find podcasts. Today's episode is sponsored by Anchor. It's the great podcast creator and distributor that helps make the happiness question possible. They make it easy to distribute your podcast onto more than 10 platforms, including Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, all without you lifting a finger. Even better, everything they offer is free. You can even get sponsorships for your podcast with no minimum listenership required, like I've got. If you're looking to start a podcast of your own, there's no better place than Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Hello and welcome to The Happiness Question. Today I have with me Frank King, suicide prevention speaker and trainer, as well as former Tonight Show writer for 20 years. Today's episode of The Happiness Question is brought to you by Audible. Get your free 30-day trial to get one audiobook and two Audible originals for free by going to audibletrial.com slash the happiness question. Frank, uh, tell me about yourself. I see. Uh, well, I am a stand-up comedian, public speaker. I speak on suicide prevention, oftentimes as a workplace health and safety issue. I also do colleges and associations. Started comedy in 1980, well, started comedy in fourth grade, really. <laughs> and decided I wanted to be a comic after I told my first joke and then everybody in the class laughed, including the teacher. And did a high school talent show, one going to be a comedian my mom goes no you're going to college first i don't care what you do when you get done you can be a goat herder for all i care but you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree so <laughs> i went to unc chapel hill got a couple of college degrees and then i moved to san diego with an insurance company and my first wife her father worked for the insurance company that's how i got the gig because otherwise i was functionally unemployable um and for the uh, bad news for the insurance company in that town, San Diego, in La Jolla, which is a suburb, there's a comedy store with an open mic night. And so I did what I tell people who say I want to be a comedian. I tell them to do this. Go to the open mic night a couple times. See how bad 80% of the people are. That'll give you the courage to get up. And I did. 
and I got up and I got laughs and I thought to myself that night on stage inside my head I heard I'm home I'm gonna do this for a living I have no idea how so about a year later I won a contest funniest person in San Diego improv contest made a thousand bucks paid off my back taxes booked 10 weeks the following year which would be January 1986 and the day after Christmas 85 my girlfriend I said I'm going on the road to be a stand-up comedian full-time do you want to come along and she said yes so we went on the road and we put everything in storage gave up our jobs put everything we you know could fit in a little Dodge Colt and we were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row non-stop Oh my gosh. Yeah, no home. Post office box answering service, hotel to hotel, and uh, worked with, opened up for uh, Seinfeld, Dennis Miller, Ellen DeGeneres, Rosie O'Donnell, Dana Carvey, Kevin Nealon, Foxworthy, Ron, what, you know, back when they were just con- Kevin James, just when they were, when they were just Adam Sandler, yeah. back when they were just comic. And then the road began to, the boom began to bust, and I got an offer to do a morning show, be a co-host of a rock and roll morning show in my old hometown of Raleigh, North Carolina. So I jumped on it and I took a number one morning show and drove it to number six in 18 months and got fired. And then I began speaking, doing the corporate comedy thing and it was just comedy until after, well, the recession. Meeting planner said, hey, look, Frank, you're funny, you're clean, but we need something, we need takeaways, you know, learning objectives, you got to teach them something. So didn't think I had anything to teach anybody. But Judy Carter, who wrote the comedy Bible, and she's getting ready to release the sequel, which is called the New Testament. It's about writing stand-up comedy, writing comedy for sitcoms, so forth. She also wrote a book called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career, Finding Your Message. So I read it, and I thought, I do have a message. And it was all about my depression, thoughts of suicide, because it runs into families called Generational Depression and Suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mom found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mom and I found her. I was four years old. And I came close enough to dying by suicide that I could tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Uh, spoiler alert, didn't pull the trigger. And I tell that joke in my act, and a guy came up, a friend of mine, and I was in Philadelphia, came up afterwards. He goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? <laughs> so so since about, since about uh, 2014, when I did my first TED Talk, I came out at that point. Nobody knew I was depressed and suicidal. Nobody. My family, my wife, my friends, nobody. So I came out, as it were, in that first TED Talk. And that helped me rebrand from being a funny speaker to a speaker who was funny and began talking about suicide prevention. So that's a thumbnail sketch of my, oh, and I was a quarterfinalist on the old Star Search show with Ed McMahon. I lost to a pup, which is my greatest credit, I think. <laughs> so that brings you up to today. Now I just, I now pretty much uh, speak on suicide prevention. And I still do the cruise ship. I do 12 weeks a year, roughly, on Holland, America, sailing around the world. Just got back from, uh, we took a trip from Kodiak, Alaska to Yokohama, Japan, and I flew home. So I do stand-up, just stand-up on the ship. Cool. Yeah, it's a great vacation. How does one even get booked on a cruise ship? Well, you can go straight to Holland, America and apply, or you can get an agent. I have an agent, and she represents all the cruise lines, Carnival, Royal Caribbean, Holland, America. But Holland America is the only one I do anymore. It's an older crowd, longer cruises, nicer destinations. And I'm old, man. I'm 62. So, I mean, I can work carnival, you know, the drunken idiots. I can do it and do it well. But it's just a grind, you know. On yeah. carnival, you work two and three shows a night, six nights a week. Ooh. Holland America, I was on the boat 14 days. I did four shows total. So, the rest of the time, I'm just working out, and, you know, eating right, taking long naps. Yeah. 
So how did you get to write for the Tonight Show? Oh, you know, I'm one of my one of my skills, something I inherited from my mother. I didn't realize I had it till well, I didn't realize networking was a thing <laughs> until I saw a book on it at Barnes and Noble. I thought everybody doesn't know how to do this. Because my mom, I, I learned to network at her knee. You know, you you help other people get what they want. Oftentimes you can get what you want. It's a Zig Ziglar quote. And my wife says I collect people and I connect people. So I was somewhere on the road doing stand-up and somebody, one of the other comics was writing for Leno. And I said, well, how's that work? Well, you fill out the form, be an independent contractor, send it in. They send you a fax number. This is back in the 80s, late 80s. And then you just send in jokes every day. So I signed up. And what was happening was Johnny Carson had selected Jay Leno as his permanent guest host. So if Johnny decided on a Friday afternoon that he didn't want to work the next week, he would let his staff know. They would panic. Call Jay. Jay, you're working four nights next week. Now, four nights means 18 jokes per night. It's like 100, 112 jokes. So he would put the word out to the fax writers. That's what they called us, the fax writers. And I would, I would crank 12, 24 jokes in a day leading up to those tonight shows. And what happens is Jay puts them on, Jay staff puts them on index cards. He goes to the Hermosa Beach Comedy Magic Club and just runs through them in front of the audience to see which ones hit. And I was averaging one or two a week in the monologue. And then, then when he got to the tonight show, they changed the fax number, kept all the people who had good production numbers. And I, I got the new fax number and I had two jokes in his very first monologue when he took over. And, and I wrote until he left the Tonight Show, you know, when he, he quit the Tonight Show or, you know, they made him quit, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> nice guy, genuinely um, interested in, you know, helping anybody. And when, when it all ended, he I wanted him to do a little video for him, a little video clip talking about what a great speaker I am. And he goes, hey, I can't really do a video. I mean, NBC, I think I will do. If you ever get a chance to do another morning show, give me the name and number of the program director who's thinking about hiring you, and I'll call them up, see if I can't strong arm them into, you know, giving you the job. So I carry that around in my pocket in case I get some super opportunity where it comes down to me and somebody else, and, you know, Jay could call up and hammer them into picking me. Pick me, pick me, pick me. <laughs> and, you know, here, here's a guy who's, you know, I, I could never do anything for him, but he's willing to go out of his way. So... That's how I got to write for the Tonight Show. And the dream was, and this happened for some people, you write enough jokes by fax and they need another in-house writer in the writer's guild. They reach down, they pluck you, you know, from obscurity and put you on the staff and you're there on site. And several people did. I never got, I never got that opportunity, but a couple of the guys that I've been writing with, you know, the fax writers, they ended up on staff. So, you know, it wasn't a bad idea and I'm, I'm, I'm not sorry. I did it. Good practice writing those jokes every day. I mean, that's a lot of, you know, that's, that's great brain work. Were you leaving The Tonight Show? Was it like, how did that happen? Well, he, you know, they, 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 they sent him on his way. And I was like, Jay, you're getting a little old and we got somebody else in mind, Jimmy Fallon, so you need to retire. Which Leno never would have done because he's got an amazing work ethic. He would finish a show at five o'clock in the afternoon on a whatever day. There's an airport in Burbank and he'd have a private jet. He'd fly to Vegas, do a show that night in Vegas, fly back. That's kind of, you know, he, I sleep four hours a night. One of those guys, you know, just never stops. So I think he would have, he would have died on, he would have died there doing the monologue if they'd let him just keep going. But, you know, and he, he's got a show on CNBC, that thing with the cars, which is his passion, obviously. So, yeah, it, it just ended for all of us, you know, when, when Jay gave it up. And I wrote, I wrote a little bit for Dennis Miller on a CNBC show, I wrote some jokes for Joan Rivers back in the day. 
but Leno was the one that I wrote most, you know, wrote, wrote many, many thousands of jokes for. Okay, and you did say you had a suicide history, obviously. That is correct. Not easy to talk about, necessarily. Piece of cake, man. <laughs> but you've had a lot of practice, obviously. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, and you know, it's therapeutic for me. Now, people ask, you know, when you speak to a group, do a keynote on suicide prevention, is it therapeutic? Absolutely. Once I came out and discovered that, that you know, not many people talk about it. It's kind of a taboo. But I discovered if you mention the words depression and suicide out loud, people tell you the most amazing stories. I was working a cruise ship. It was breakfast. I couldn't find a seat. And I looked over and there's a woman at a table for two. And there was an empty chair. So I point, she nods, I sit. She looked up, she goes, hey, are you the comedian? I go, hey, you enjoy the comedy show? She goes, I did. I go, I'm the comedian. She said, well, what would, you, what would you have said if I told you I hated it? I look a lot like it. She said, is comedy all you do? Because they ask that all the time. You know, is cruise comedy. I said, no, you know what? I'm a public speaker and I got to brag a little bit. I just nailed down my first TED Talk. She goes, I love the TED Talks. What's the topic? Well, I knew what was coming, I thought. So I said, depression and suicide. Started to count down in my head. Three, two, one. She goes, you know, I tried to kill myself twice. We have just met. It's like she was just waiting for somebody to say those words out loud. She said, the first time I was in college, not that serious. Second time, far more serious. I had graduated college, she said. I graduated medical school. I had the knowledge, had the equipment. She said, Frank, I had the IV started in my ankle. Suicide cocktail in one hand, syringe in the other, getting ready to load it up. And the phone rang. So she's debating, do I pick it up? Well, I better because it might be somebody who would worry, come over and interrupt. So she picks it up. It's her 13-year-old son. She goes, I don't know if he heard something in my voice or had a premonition, but he said, Mom, don't do anything. So I didn't. I didn't give up on the idea of suicide, she said, but I decided not to do it that day because I knew it would, it would, it would bother him the rest of his life knowing he might have said or done something to stop me, which, by the way, there are things you can say. There are things you can do. Eight out of ten people who are suicidal are ambivalent. So... I said, well, how old is he now? She said, 21. I said, does he know this phone call saved your life? She goes, no. How do you start that conversation? <laughs> so that became the theme of my TEDx talk. My first one, start the conversation because silence kills. And then I've done three more since then. And I just got another one yesterday. I just picked up another TEDx to be in November. On, on a mental, all of them are on mental health topics. The one tomorrow uh, the one in november is and i knew <laughs> tomorrow that would be terrible yeah that, yeah and all of us an outline this is going to be difficult yeah <laughs> yeah come on the it was it was it was an idea that i knew would not would not that every committee would not go for i knew most of them would go no no we can't anyway i just booked my fifth one and once i came once i came out and and did the first tedx then like i said i began to rebrand and uh, and i picked several markets that occupations that have high risk for suicide, dentists, veterinarians, construction are the three I'm working right now. Those are three of the top 12. Construction's number one. Really? Uh, vet, yeah, vets and dentists right there in the middle of the pack, five and six. Yeah, construction is the number one at-risk occupation in the U.S. for suicide. Why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. One, it's male-dominated, and eight out of 10 suicides in the U.S. every year are men age 45 to 54. You know, it's also subject to the weather, to the economy, you know, the recession, it threw who knows how many, you know, tradesmen, plumbers, electricians, carvers out of work. So, you know, you're, 
and we're, and we maybe you know maybe there may be another recession year around the corner depending on who you you know who you listen to. So, but yeah, that's number one. It's number one goes to construction, farming, fishing, you know, construction, excavation, mining, farming, fishing, forestry, and then the dentists and the veterinarians and so forth. So anyway, I picked three. The reason I picked those, by the way, is because all those occupations, they're the only three that have said, yes, we have a problem. And yes, we want to do something about it. The other nine, no, they got a problem, but they're doing the head in the sand thing. They're just like, oh, we don't want to talk about it. So anyway, that's 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 why I chose those. Um, why did you try to commit suicide? When was that? What was the background? Oh, okay. Uh, and by the way, the preferred verbiage nowadays is died by suicide, completed a suicide. Yeah. The mental health community is trying to get away from committed because commit, you commit a sin, you commit a crime. Mm. You know, so that's, that's why they're trying to, because there's some baggage with the word commit. The recession, pure and simple. My business, my speaking business dropped off 80% overnight and we just couldn't keep up with the house payments and such. And so we filed bankruptcy and it was really hurting my wife, which really hurt me. If I'd been single, I could have sailed through it. You know? But her pain, people who are, people who live with mental illness oftentimes are very empathetic. They feel others' pains very acutely. So I had a million dollar life insurance policy. I thought, you know, I can fix this. People who are suicidal, one of the three main elements of that of that condition is a burdensomeness. You feel like you're a burden. The world would be better off without you. And a million-dollar life insurance policy, I was literally worth more, more dead than alive. So I figured I'd kill myself. My wife would get the insurance. She could save the farm. You know, she would have to still have to work, but she wouldn't be destitute. The bills would be paid. And the problem was you have to have that policy two years. Otherwise... You die by suicide at anything less than two years, it doesn't pay. Two years in a day, pays in full. So I called my insurance agent. He goes, oh, you had it 22 months. And no, don't you do it. Because he had that conversation with a number of people. And several people had died by suicide to so the heirs could collect the money. So I had two months. I couldn't, I couldn't, I wasn't going to leave my wife brokenhearted and broke. So I had to hang on for two months. The irony is because I have what's called chronic suicidality, because the idea of suicide is not was not a big deal for me is I knew two months in a day I'd kill myself so that that allowed me to hang on you know because I always have that option I'm sitting in the exit row by the window I could do it anytime and so you know if, I, if it weren't for that I probably would have killed myself a long time ago if I didn't have didn't feel like I had the option so anyway lasted two I survived two months in a day things got a little better bankruptcy went through phone call stopped and just enough just enough you know to take a breath and that was nine years ago, nine, a little over nine years ago. So that, that was the, I, that was the reason that I came that close. I had a plan, you know, it's, but I wasn't going to leave, I wasn't going to leave her broke. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That was definitely a harder time. I kind of afraid for the next time that happens because it's going to happen. Yeah, you know, I, I my my depression is generally generally not uh, not situational. It's clinical, and which means I've been most depressed uh, at some of the best times in my life. And I used to worry, you know, if I'm this depressed, things are good. What the hell's going to happen when things go bad? Well, we all now have an idea what's going to happen when things go bad. Yeah. So we, you know, we had house payments like twenty three hundred bucks a month. And now we've got a little house, a third of that, and so we, you know, we we sort of 
we've downsized to where we can, you know, it's we live in small, so it's it's not going to be. It, yeah, it wasn't credit cards. It was just those house payments. It just I couldn't make, couldn't net twenty three hundred a month to pay the house payments. So we just had to go belly up. But you know, learned a lot. Stayed together, which uh, either either destroys a marriage or drives you closer together. Also, bankruptcy, if there is a good thing to it, it lets you know what you need versus what you want. Mm. You know, you need a you need shelter and food, and you know that kind of thing. You don't there are a lot of things you don't have to have to survive. So. Anyway, and it gave me a career. I didn't before I stuck the gun in my mouth. I didn't think I had anything to teach anybody, and lo and behold. <laughs> yeah and what happens is in my keynotes all the time somebody comes up afterwards i say about 95 percent of the time somebody or more than one somebody comes up afterwards and they have what i have which is called chronic suicidality meaning for me and them the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small and the story i tell in my keynote is my car broke down. I had three thoughts unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. So what happens is, if there's somebody in the audience who's had thoughts like that, usually they don't know it has a name. They just think they're some kind of freak and that they're all alone. And so when they come up afterwards, I mean, I had a woman come up to me at a function that she was crying so hard she couldn't speak. So I said to her, you've got chronic suicidality. She nods. I said, uh, you didn't know it had a name. Nod. You thought you were some kind of freak. Nod, you thought you were all alone. Nod, so look, you have a therapist? Nod, still crying. Well, when you go home, set an appointment. Tell the therapist everything you learned today. For goodness sakes, tell them you Googled it. Don't tell them you learned it from a comedian. Yeah. And I got an email from him about a week later. said, you know, Frank, I think I was at that conference simply to meet you, and you changed my life, and I cannot say that about many people. So what? The upshot of that is, is I realized I am like George Bailey in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. I've seen what other people's lives would be like if I wasn't there to speak and spare them the pain of thinking they're alone in this journey. So and my second thought was, well, then I can't, I can't kill myself because I'd take all those people with me. And my third thought was, as a comedian, then they'd chase me through eternity. You couldn't wait a week? <laughs> so... So that's very, it's very, you know, to, 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 to bring somebody that kind of relief, you know, to let them know they're not alone in the world, that there are other, lots of other people who think just exactly the same way. One young woman said to me, I was hoping I'd grow out of it. I go, I'm 62. If I'm going to grow out of it. I better get started. <laughs> so anyway, it's, it's been very rewarding. It's good for my, it's good for my mental health. Well, and uh, you should know, the two women and I are writing a book. First volume's almost done, should be out next month. It's called The Guts, Grit, and the Grind, a men's, mechanical, a men's Mental Mechanical Manual. It's about, it's an anthology. It's stories, 40-some-odd stories, men talking about a problem they have. You know, alcoholism, drug addiction, divorce, bankruptcy. First 500 words, they tell you, you know, everything, everything's good. Second 500 words, things go bad. Last 500 words, they talk about how they're coping. So it's a book for men by men. Plus it's chock full of all sorts of clinical information, resources, and exercises. And, and the reason it's a mechanical manual is we want to make it like an automobile owner's manual. So it's full of car metaphors. You know, don't you wish men had a check engine light so that, you know, 
if it comes on, they go to the mental mechanic, they plug into the computer, and they go, Bob, no wonder you're depressed. You're, you're quite low on serotonin. <laughs> so, you know, it's very, it's very manly. And we think women are going to buy it more than men. Women who have a father, brother, you know, loved one who has a problem, they're going to go looking for, for answers. And that first part of that book is called Guts, Grit, and the Grind, a Men's Mental Mechanical Manual. First, first volume of the book comes out uh, next month. And again, eight out of 10 people who die in the U.S. by suicide right now are men. And men tend not to, you know, they wait too long when they got a lump in their testicle. They wait too long to get a colonoscopy. They, they, they dismiss the chest pains as, as heartburn. So it's, that's why men don't live as long as women because they, you know, they just ignore those things, rationalize, whereas women tend to go into the doctor and go, I got this pain. So, so that book, that's, our, that's our book, and that'll be uh, coming out shortly. That's cool. Okay. Um, why is suicide funny? Why is suicide funny? Suicide itself is not funny. There's nothing funny about because people ask me, uh, depression, suicide, what's funny about that? Nothing. However, there is humor in almost every topic. And you notice when I said, I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Pause. Spoiler alert. Pause didn't pull the trigger, always gets the laugh. And then I tell the story about the guy who came up and said, how come you didn't pull the trigger? And I say, how come, you, you know, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? Again, it's very dark, but it's, it's humor that's organic to the topic and organic to me. It's, it's not jokes, it's my stories and things that actually happen. I had a woman call me up and go, we'd like you to do a keynote at lunch. I go, well, what do you want me to cover? She goes, I don't know, just give me a list of bullet points. I said, Michelle, Bullet points? Really? You do know I stuck a gun in my mouth. Oh my God, I can't believe I said that. I said, Don't worry about it. It happens all the time. So there, there, there is humor. And it's such a dark topic that, that a lot of times the reason I get booked is people want their group to have the education. But they also want a little comic relief along the way to make it more digestible. It's very difficult to spend 45 to 60 minutes just talking about death and dying without giving them a little comic relief. So that's, that's why it's... Yeah. Well, and that's what it is. Yeah. And that's why, again, that's why oftentimes I get booked because they look at, I got an email this morning from a dental group and they had gone to the website, the Dental Speakers Bureau, state of Washington next year is going to require dentists and hygienists to have three hours of continuing education on suicide prevention to renew their licenses. So they went to the Dental Speakers Bureau website to find somebody who talked about suicide prevention. And when they landed on me and realized I'm not a clinician, I'm a comedian. I mean, it's three hours. Yeah, I mean, that's a long time to sit without it, you know. So yeah. they, they sent me an email right away and I called back this morning, left a message. I'm available on that day. So that's, it, you know, it's, again, it's, there aren't many civilians talking about this, a lot of clinicians, and there are very few comedians. Although I got to tell you, a friend of mine, Mike McDonald, used to say there's two kinds of comedians, diagnosed, undiagnosed. <laughs> yeah, we have, a, we have a podcast. My co-host and I, Zara Khan, we have a podcast called The Suicide Prevention Punchline, as opposed to The Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Suicide Prevention Punchline. And we have on comics and other creatives who have a higher rate of suicide, and we have clinicians on to talk about you know, their take on it. And, it's, and we're getting ready to do a mental health comedy tour where it's comedians in the comedy club regular comedy show but 
at least five or 10 minutes of their time on stage will be jokes about their mental health. Some will do even more. Some will do a full half hour funny on their mental health. And then there's a Q&A thing afterwards if the audience wants to hang around. And then we're going to put a tour together where they go from comedy club to comedy club. So there'd be a show, kind of like Dry Bar Comedy and Dry Bar yes. Comedy Tour. Oh, I love that. Oh, yeah. I know most of the guys are on there. Same idea. You got a show and you got a tour. But it will be wrapped around mental health. So That's a really cool idea, actually. Well, I wish I could take credit for it. A friend of mine, a, guy, a young man that I met in Wyoming years ago when I was running a comedy contest for the Search Candy Company, going from college campus to college campus. He won that night in Laramie, Wyoming, at the University of Wyoming. And we stayed in touch and had lunch with me the other day in D.C. when I was speaking at a veterinary conference. And he goes, hey, man, how come we don't put a, like a, you know, comedy tour together for mentally ill comics? Call it, I don't know, Mixed Nuts. I'm like, what? Ah, really? Oh, yeah, great idea. So I came home, put together a treatment for it, found a video company that's willing to do it. A video company, actually, that's a 5013C, and their emphasis is mental health. And so we're, we're talking about doing it at uh, one of the clubs in Detroit, bringing in a couple of comics who are mentally ill, filming a 90-minute show, which would be three episodes, three 30-minute episodes, and then pitching it to Amazon, Netflix, you know, whoever's willing to take a look at. So, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's a long shot, but I've taken longer. And, and there's a big push at Amazon, apparently, on mental health uh, programming. So we're hoping that, you know, that, that'll be the thing pushed over the top. You've been able to find comedy in your own mental health. How do we find happiness in comedy in our own lives? Well, I think you had to put on, uh, I did a show for the Vancouver Public Libraries, library system, and it was titled Finding the Funny. And what I told them was, you, you need to put on your giggle goggles. <laughs> The ones with the earpiece, because it's not all visual. Sometimes you hear. And what I've discovered is if you begin to look for funny, if you begin to look for comedy, something happens in your brain where after you begin to look, you can't shut that off. Somebody, it's like breaking off the valve. And, it's just, and you begin to see things in your environment that you probably saw before but didn't really make note of. Here's what comedians ask themselves over and over and over again when they see something. Or hear something. What's wrong with that picture? What's what? So there's something, you know, something wrong or something different. I mean, there's a reason that, that it caught my ear, caught my eye. And give me an example. I'm on a Delta flight, and it's the day after the FAA said you could use your iPhone or iPad on takeoff if you had it in uh, airplane mode. Well, the flight attendant's problem is everything else she's going to say is written down somewhere, but not that. She's going to have to improv. So I'm on the edge of my seat. I can't wait to hear what she's got to say about it. So she comes on you and does a, does a and Delta, very Southern flight attendant. She does an oxygen mask and the full path lighting. And, you know, the, and then she gets to this part where she, I know she's got to say something about the phone and the iPad. And long silence, you can hear her thinking. And she goes, ladies and gentlemen, due to a new FAA regulation. Think, 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 think. Then she gets inspired. She goes, um, due to new FAA regulation, if you have small equipment, you can continue playing with it. <laughs> I'm bent over double laughing. Nobody else on the plane. My seatmate thinks I've lost my mind. He goes, what? I go, let's review. Before I can review, she comes back on. She goes, you have large equipment. You're going to have to shove that under the seat in front of you. So I'm down on my knees. So 
what a comedian is really we don't get paid to talk we get paid to pay attention to listen we're we're like police we're paid observers we you need to take note you know driving down the highway you look up at a billboard you look back down you think wait a minute that's not the way that word's spelled but you know thousands of cars go by every day never even notice the misspelling or never so you need to begin to notice things in your environment i guess pay pay closer attention to, to what's in your or the topic whatever topic you're trying to find funny in you need to pay very close attention because there's always a little something something there somewhere if you're paying you know a misspelling an odd juxtaposition of words a funny phrase a play on words that wasn't unintended yeah, it's just a matter of opening your mind up to the possibility that there's funny, you know, funny in whatever you're looking at. And, you know, depression and suicide, you know. Well, when, when I pitched the show to the video company, I said, I want to do a comedy show with mentally ill comics. And they go, really? And I go, yeah, just think of, think of it this way. It's a cross between one flew over the cuckoo's nest and dry bar comedy. <laughs> And all of a sudden they got it because they, I gave them two things that they knew, they knew what each one was. So attaching them to each other, they got the concept right away. That's what comics do. They paint the picture vividly so that you can grasp. I tell my young comics that I'm teaching, you know, they go, well, funny things happen to me. I just don't know how to translate that to the stage. You need to take the audience there. You need to describe it in such a way that they understand, you know, they can see themselves standing where you're standing when it happened. And the clearer the picture, the bigger the laugh. So, how do you get help? How do I get like for suicide? What what should you do if oh. you're suicidal? Uh, well, if you're suicidal, I would uh, call the suicide prevention lifeline or text the word connect to seven four one seven four one. If you're not suicidal but you really have just a crappy day and you're depressed, you know, clinically depressed, I would call a crazy person like me. <laughs> Well, because, you know, crazy people, unlike neuronormal people, will generally won't judge you. They won't do what they call the mental health business, should all over you. You should do this, and you should do that, and you should try fish oil. People who are mentally ill generally are just willing to listen and sort of co-sign your troubles. And I tell people, because neuronormal people ask me all the time, what do I say? My friend's depressed. Don't say anything. Just listen. Let them talk freely. And don't judge. Uh, if the first thing I tell people is you need to make sure you're on the right medication. And the way to do that is one of the ways to do that is to get a cheek swab DNA test from 23andMe or my genetics or one of the, one of the genetic testing companies, just type in depression, depression, drugs, DNA testing, cheek swab, and you'll find half a dozen companies that do it. It's a couple hundred bucks. Most insurance is covered. And they compare your DNA to a list of, let's say, antidepressants. And they're trying to find the one or two that work best with your metabolism. So you don't have that, you know, that lab rat on taper off, on taper off. That's number one. Number two, find a good therapist. And it's difficult nowadays because, you know, there's a shortage of of, uh, mental health providers. And I take a holistic approach. I take medication. I do meditation. I exercise. I'm on a very strict diet. I have interests outside my job that I can excel in and enjoy that, you know, nothing to do with comedy or speaking. So <clears throat> good night's sleep. And so it's more of a holistic, I believe, I don't, I, some people just believe in the pharmacological, you know, take a pill. But I think it's like the time I spend on the cruise ships, 12 weeks a year. It's, it's part of my 
self-care plan because I can go on, decompress, deconnect from the um, iPhone, get a lot of work done, get caught up, take long naps, work out every day because the gym's right there. So that's all part of, you know, part and part. But yeah, if you are depressed, I would say make sure you're on the right medication. Find the find a therapist with whom you are copacetic. And then look at the other elements, meditation, you know, medication, exercise. And here's some people go, exercise reduces stress. Only if you like to exercise. <laughs> if, you, if you don't like to exercise, that's not a stress reducer. So you know what I mean? You know what I, mean? Yeah. I, I, I like to exercise because that's my thing. But I can see why people go, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go to the gym. I hate going to the gym. Well, for God's sakes, don't go to the gym. Anyway, I take a more holistic approach than just the pharmacological. And you know, I didn't take medicine for years. And finally, my wife goes, you're 60 years old. Ask your doctor. So I did. He gave me some a script for Wellbutrin because it doesn't make you gain weight. He thinks that's, you know, and with Wellbutrin, I've discovered either it really works well for you or it doesn't, you know, like half and half. Turns out it worked very well for me. Within three weeks, I thought, why, why was I waiting? Why did I wait to do this? <laughs> doesn't make me, you know, it doesn't make me giddy, but it makes, it just takes the edge off. So, yeah, and I think you need to surround yourself, you know, with, that's what the book is about. The, you know, relating the mechanical things in a car to mental health, because in a car, you know, you have safety equipment. You got an airbag, seatbelt, shoulder harness. And so you need to construct, a, you know, a safety, you know, a safety net in case something goes wrong, uh, including people and, you know, resources and whatever. And then if you think about it, in anticipation of things going wrong in your car, you join AAA. You make sure that the spare tires full of air. You got a little, uh, maybe a first aid kit and uh, some flares and stuff in the back, uh, in the trunk, jumper cables. So you're planning ahead in case something goes wrong. That's how they re relate to the car. And then, you know, take drug addiction, for instance. You know, usually it doesn't start out full-blown drug addiction. It's, you know, a little bit of weed. And then, you know, you know something happens in your life. Your girlfriend or boyfriend leaves you, lose a job, more weed. So it's kind of like this. And it's kind of like brakes in your car. Your girlfriend leaves. Well, the analogy to a car is your brakes begin to squeak. So, you know, something's wrong. And then you lose your job. The brakes begin to squeak more. And there comes a time with drug addiction and your brakes where you push the pedal and it goes all the way to the floor and the car's not stopping and you're done. So that's the, that's the connection with them. Um, so in, to answer your question, the, the book is all about preparing for something to go wrong, uh, maintaining your car, you know, like the self-care plan is like changing the oil, rotating the tires, airing them up, checking the fluids. So that you're constantly, you know, that's that in humans is medication, meditation, exercise, diet, sleep. Does that make sense? Yes. So that uh, that's that's my advice to people is, you know, is you have to you have to think ahead. It's uh, medication. You're just taking a pill is not probably not. It'll help you get started, but I don't think it's it's the answer. All right. I think we've got one last question, and it's. If your friend, if you find out a friend or someone else close to you is suicidal, what can you do? Well, what I tell people in my keynote is, if you suspect somebody's suicidal, even though they haven't told you, there's something in your intuition is screaming. Some you picked up some kind of cue, so take that seriously. And if you if you believe that, then you need to confront them. And I always recommend in a private place it's quiet where you where you're in a good place physically and mentally there's nobody else around and you flat out ask them are you depressed and they say yes 
Are you having thoughts of suicide? Yes. If they say that, do you have a plan? If they say yes, you say, what is your plan? And if it's detailed, then that's very dangerous. Your job at that point is to get, get them on the phone with a suicide prevention lifeline or, or texting connect to 741741. Uh, if they won't do it, I, I advise you pick up the phone, you call the suicide prevention lifeline, the volunteer will do whatever they can to get that phone in the hand of the person who is in crisis. If you believe they are, and if I believe they were an immediate danger to themselves or other people, I'm going to call 911 because I know they're going to get a three-day hold. I know they're going to be pissed, but, you know, I'm not sure they haven't pissed and alive um, and not, not hurt themselves or other people. Now, let's say they're, they're depressed and they're suicidal and they got a plan, but, you know, it's not that specific. My next question is always, because this would apply to me, are you going to kill yourself? Well, I would because I've got a plan. I'm depressed. I would go, no, why would I kill myself? And then the last question I believe you should ask, I would ask is, okay, well, if you're not going to kill yourself, tell me why not? You know, let's end on a positive note. And I've already told you my why not, because I'm George Bailey and it's a wonderful life. I can't kill myself because I take all those people with me. Yeah. So I've got a solid, so that's, that's the progression. Depressed, yes. Plan, yes. What's your plan? You know, if it's really dangerous, phone call, text, or if it's bad, they're going to hurt themselves, 911. You know, get the police involved. It's going to involve, you know, involuntary detention order, but so be it. Anyway. Perfect. Um, I think that's the end of our show. What's the best way we can get in touch with you? We want to see more of you. Uh, type in The Mental Health Comedian, and my website will come up, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm old, but I am social media savvy, baby. <laughs> Perfect. It's been great talking to you, Frank. All right, nice talking to you. Have a great day. See ya.